Hello and welcome to In the Days of Noor with me, Noor, where we talk about Islamic-related topics and social issues. Today I wanted to talk about a recent article I read, and the title of it is A Spiritual Disease in American Muslims Making Them Gods Above God. I thought it was a really good article, very short, but it delves into some important topics that I wanted to discuss here on the podcast today. So, one of basically the main crux of the article is the way in which we in American society, Muslims in American society, have favored our opinions and our intellectually derived uh, opinions, basically, above and beyond traditional Islamic scholarly opinions. And I thought the article made some good points, so what I'm going to do is just sort of go through what I've highlighted and make some further commentary on it. I'll say that I probably agree with, completely agree with the sentiment. However, I think that the author doesn't delve enough into why those issues exist. Um, Of course, he touches a certain angle, which we'll get into, which is the fact that many American Muslims are raised and brought up and educated in American um, intellectual, how can I say, sort of um, from, from the stance of American intellectualism instead of traditional Islam. So raised on logic and appealing to public reason and that sort of thing, more so than being trained in traditional Islam. So yes, of course, that's going to greatly influence how they view Islam, if they even take interest in Islam at any point, and how they approach it is, of course, going to be influenced by their training as Muslims in their education. However, I think what he didn't trust on, touch on is some of the trash, sorry, (laughs) messing up my words here. Uh, What he did not touch on is some of the trust issues that have happened in the Muslim community when it comes to our scholarships and the larger disconnect that the Muslim American community and unfortunately many Islamic communities these days in general have from traditional Islam. There's a major disconnect and then if you really want to look at it in a historical context you can trace it back to Salafism, Wahhabism, um, and really big movements and big things that happen outside of just American Muslims being raised up in this, in reason and logic and debate and not being a way of knowing truth. And really to attach it also to Wahhabism and Salafism and many of the things that disconnected us from traditional Islam because that is really even if you say that the issue or the main issue is American intellectualism and believing that reason and logic can lead you to truth 100% of the time even if you say that's the issue what is the solution because I would argue the solution is certainly not to turn our backs on our intellect that would be foolish it's simply it's certainly not to turn our back even on public reasoning 
because of course the public public reasoning is not always going to agree with Islam is not always going to come to the inclu- the conclusions that Islam comes to but very often when you do appeal to public reason then you do find within that that you can reason with people about Islamic issues uh, and by that I mean there's there's nothing in Islam that is unreasonable it may sound unreasonable on the surface for example corporal punishment or death for certain um, sins or crimes in in Islam. But when you really dig into it, and if someone who's intelligent enough explains it to you, you will get more people to understand where you're coming from. But we have a lot of religious scholars who are, they may be very educated in Islam, but they're completely ignorant of American culture. And so they may have all the traditional Islamic education in the world, but they cannot explain Islam to the American public, to uh, the in the American cultural context. And we shouldn't bypass that as Muslims and think, that's okay, that's fine, you don't have to appeal to reason and logic. As long as you have traditional Islam, that's what matters. Yeah, as a personal Muslim practicing Islam, that's what matters. But if you are someone who is public and trying to give dawah, trying to invite people to Islam, or trying to gain understanding in Islam, if you don't understand the cultural context you're in, you're never going to have an impact. And it it's not a it's not something that we can say it doesn't matter who cares about what Americans think, who cares about American society. We can't bypass this because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he always sent a message and a messenger appropriate for the people. So we as Muslims, our last and final messenger was the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a messenger to all people. But that doesn't relieve us of the responsibility of taking that message and trying to figure out how can I give this message to an American public. One of the greatest things about, um, that was the, one of the greatest signs in the time of the Prophet Wasallam that showed people that Islam was the truth and the way and the light that they should turn to was the miracle of the Quran, was the miracle and the beauty of the Quran. And why did that appeal to people? Because there there was a particular um sorry i lost my train of thought just a little bit but what i the summer the sum of what i wanted to say is that in the time of the arabs then poetry was very very valuable to them being a good poet was very valuable being the anyone who knows enough about poetry the beauty of it, whether it's the rhyming or the rhythm or whatever it is, people who are really into poetry can can say better, but they were very much into poetry. And so when something came along that was more beautiful than any of the poetry they'd ever heard, for some people, that was enough to bring them into Islam. For other people, it was knowing who the Prophet ﷺ was, knowing his trustworthiness, knowing his his lineage, knowing his honorability. 
Some, for some people, that's what brought them to Islam. For some people, it was the miracles, the signs, the otherworldly experiences that brought them to Islam. There were many different angles which brought people to Islam, but there was an angle. It's not to say that just because something is the truth, people are going to accept it. Everyone is going to accept the truth differently. Every culture is going to accept it differently. The the religion, the rules that Prophet Moses came with, alayhi salam, were different from the rules that Prophet Isa came with, were different from the rules that Prophet Muhammad came with, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Um so every not every prophet, but but prof, different prophets and messengers had different rules for their people. Um, it wasn't all the same. And that appealed to different people. Obviously, not everyone took in the message, but every messenger went to his people. Everyone, everyone had the same message in terms of one God, one faith, but there were different rules for different groups of people. And there were different people to go to those different groups of people. And so we have to realize that it actually is important to understand logic. It is important to understand reason. And it is important to know how to speak to the American public in a way that sounds intellectual and intelligent. And and not even just intellectual and intelligent, but also taps into what is already appealing in American society and American culture. And it's not that we ever belittle ourselves or go against our religion, but that we understand American culture enough that we can bring the truth to them without compromising the truth, but packaging it in a way that makes sense. Um, and so while I appreciate the article and, and everything that he said, I think that you have to deal with the fact that even though reason and logic are not the ways to truth in Islam, and honestly, it's not the way to truth, period, in the sense that it's not it, it's not all. Reason and logic are important, but you can't get to truth with reason and logic alone. You need a higher form of guidance. So as much as that is true, we can't negate reason and logic, and we also simply can't negate what is valuable in American society. For example, if you go to give a presentation to an American college or something, or you're asked to speak on TV, dress in a, to dress in a way that is appealing to the American people is not a bad thing. I'm not talking about wearing mini skirts or wearing, I don't know what would be for men, but dressing in a way that isn't foreign to the American people, that is appealing to the American people, that is sometimes simply just not a distraction from your message. There's nothing wrong with that because sometimes I feel that we're attached to the wrong things. So we're attached to something that isn't um, strictly a part of our religion, but we hold on to it and we act like it's so important, it's so valuable. And in the process, we alienate so many people who, Allahu Alam, but otherwise may have been attracted to the religion if it weren't for us trying to push this part of the religion that they find unattractive in their face. 
Quick examples would be niqab, would be polygamy, none of which are, neither of which are obligatory in Islam or the jilbab or the jalabiyah. None of these are obligatory in Islam, but and they're very foreign to our society. So why would we take those parts and promote it? You recognize the truth of it, but you don't have to promote that as the first thing when you're talking to a non-Muslim and you're talking about your religion. And even if you are asked about it, you don't have to stay on that topic. You don't have to allow yourself and allow the American people to see Islam as a foreign entity. And sometimes I feel that we forget that the most important part of Islam is la ilaha illallah. And the second most important part is Muhammad Rasulullah. And everything else comes after that. But we want to... I remember uh, going to one of my shiuk. He was giving a presentation for new Muslims. And he was talking about how a lot of the times when new Muslims enter Islam, they're given a khimar and a um, jilbab, where they're given a kufi and a Quran. And not much else. And they're sent out to go, be Muslim now. You're Muslim now. Go ahead. As if those are the most important things. We don't sit down with them and explain Akira. We don't sit down with them and explain um, the the pillars of Islam. We just don't. And, and first and foremost, because we're probably better at explaining the pillars. First and foremost, Akira. We don't have an emphasis on Akira, despite that being the most important thing. Um, so it's really, it's really unfortunate that I think we have our priorities mixed up at times. But let me get into this article, inshallah ta'ala. And I'm skipping, inshallah, I will leave a link in, below in the information section. So he says that, he talks about different things concerning a rejection of authority um, the importance that we give our opinions, Muslim bloggers and writers have learned how to deconstruct Islam, but have failed to deconstruct their own thinking. And then he goes on to say, this has led a generation of young Muslims who are highly educated in almost every other field, but possess a fifth grade level of Islamic education. I think this is so true. I wouldn't even say fifth grade. I would say pre-K level. If you're like me, alhamdulillah, I got to spend some time learning Islam. I'd say at this point, maybe five years, not every day, 24 hours a day, but five years of really trying to take Islam seriously, learning classes online, going to classes in person, um, having one-on-one classes for my shayuk, having small group classes spending some time in Jordan, etc. So really having the time and the opportunity to study Islam in a serious manner, I would say maybe I'm at a third grade level. Maybe. Most people are at a pre-K level. And that's not insulting or to put myself up or put anyone down. But it's just the honest truth because we don't realize that Islam, in in a proper Islamic society, you would learn Akira before the age of seven or nine. You would learn Akira. You would know all the basic points of Akira. You'd have it down. 
We don't understand that by the age of 10, you would have had the Quran memorized. We don't understand that by the age of 12, 13, 14, you would have studied fiqh. I'm not saying you would be a fuqaha, you would be a scholar, but the basic knowledge of Islam would have been taught to you at a basic level when you're a child, just like we teach basic math and basic reading and basic writing. When you're a child, by the time you're 12, 13, you know how to write a, a decent essay. You know how to read well. You know the basics of, of math. We would have taught taught and treated Islam in the same way in a proper Islamic society. But in a Muslim um, household in America, some people, not even everyone, but some people will take their kids They'll put them in the Sunday class. Some people will take their kids. They'll put them either in the Sunday Islamic class or the Sunday Arabic class. Uh, some people, if they ever take the interest, when you get a bit older, you start to go to the conferences, you start to go to the lectures, the classes, whatever. Some people, when you get a bit older, you'll go overseas and try to learn. But most people, in my experience, will stay on the level of Lectures. If they're interested in Islam, Islamic lectures. Uh, that will be the extent of their Islamic knowledge. Most people do not know their basic points of Aqidah. Now, inshallah ta'ala, they know it by instinct, by fitra, um, through going to lectures. They pick it up here and there. But most people do not know the point, just basic points of Aqidah basic um, attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They don't know it. They've never learned it. They don't know the scholars who taught this. They don't know the scholars who formulated this. They just don't know and it's not taught. And it's not because again we have to we have to place blame where it's due all across the board. It's not just one thing. It's not just we are so uninterested in Islam that we don't teach our kids Islam or we don't go and learn Aikido or this or that. It is partly this larger disconnect that we have to talk about. A larger disconnect that is largely attributed to the Salafi, Wahhabi movement that disconnected us from traditional scholars, that disconnected us from Shafi and Maliki and, and Hanbali and Hanafi that disconnected us from Maturidi and Ashari that disconnected us from the big scholars and not just the scholars themselves of course but their students as well that kept traditional Islam alive and really it's an, we shouldn't even have to put the title traditional in front of it but we have to because what people consider the norm um, is a watered down version of that and it, it's funny because it reminds me, I'll take the example, it's exactly like this, uh, metaphorically, obviously, is that when when you go to the store, there are eggs, and there are organic eggs. In reality, the organic eggs are the normal, natural eggs. That's how all eggs would have been 50, 100 years ago. But somehow, this process got messed up and big companies came in and they did this and they did that and those what used to be organic eggs went through that process and became regular eggs now they're just eggs 
and the normal eggs from 50, 100 years ago, now we have to put the label organic on it because the other egg that we think are just regular eggs, those are the ones that have stolen that, that um, the idea of regularity. I hope you're following that because I know that was a bit of a... That was tough to explain that one. <laughs> but uh, what I'm basically trying to say is that traditional Islam, the idea of learning from a teacher and, and getting knowledge from a teacher that had an isnad back to the Prophet Wasallam, that was a no-brainer. The idea that you can't make up your own fatwa was a no-brainer. The idea of qualified scholarship was a no-brainer. This was, this wasn't argued. <laughs> like, this wasn't argued. This was, these weren't points of contention. But they became points of contention when there was this, there became this disconnect from the scholars and people saying, we want to go back to the Quran and Sunnah. And it's, it was kind of like, well, when did we move away from the Quran and Sunnah? Because if you're following a path that has an isnad back to the Prophet you're not going away from Quran and Sunnah. You're sticking as closely to Quran and Sunnah as humanly possible. But they took the title and they took the name and that became regular Islam. So now we have to slap this label of traditional Islam so that people know what we're talking about. So it's very important that we don't act as though this is a problem that Muslims have simply put on themselves because they're just so ignorant and so arrogant that they think they can take Islam upon themselves and they don't really care to learn the the religion, but then they'll also criticize and deconstruct it. They're using the tools available to them, unfortunately. And if it wasn't for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pointing me in particular directions, I never would have discovered these these um uh traditional Islam and Isnad and following the path of the Prophet through sticking to those scholars who have an Islam back to the Prophet I wouldn't have known anything about that if it wasn't for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pointing me to very specific places by fortune, alhamdulillah. But that's not everywhere. Alhamdulillah, it's, it's growing for sure. You have Zaytuna and you have Seeker's Guidance and you have Qibla and you have uh, different programs on and offline that are popping up that promote traditional Islam without saying it, which is which is very important. But we have to be clear about what the problem is. The problem is not just the individuals themselves and poor choices. It's a larger problem that has to do with a larger disconnect from traditional Islam. So he goes over and goes on and he says, these articles are often saturated by an appeal to the ethos of the reader and actually authoritative proof is marginal. So, again, I agree with him on this point. He goes into the way that people basically, as he said before, they have this fifth grade level of Islamic education, but then they write articles... um, he says, often oversaturated by an appeal to the ethos of the reader, and actual authoritative proof is marginal. I completely agree with that. 
Um, and it's, uh, and it's something you have to be careful of just as a writer too, or someone who gives their opinion, whether a podcast or a YouTube or just writing Facebook posts, whatever, a reminder to myself and anyone listening, it is something you have to be careful of when you're giving your opinion, when you're writing an article or blog or whatever. And you have to be careful when it comes to Islam. And that's why it's so important to have this traditional scholarship because you should know what the limits are basically you should know what the limits are so when for instance when I talk about hijab and I've spoken about hijab many times I've spoken about my personal struggle with hijab I've spoken about um commenting on articles that talk about hijab I've spoken about hijab from many different angles but, and even though I read articles about um, the subject being and being more anti-hijab or not feeling like it was, it was an obligation, I have never taken that stance. Even despite my quote-unquote issues with hijab, which are not um, religious issues but personal issues, I've never tried to make a blog post or an article or a podcast or anything else trying to even entertain the idea that hijab is not obligatory. And it's not because I think that there's no 100%, no possibility that there could be any room in that discussion. But I have not come across any evidence by anyone of real authority when it comes to this issue. Maybe one day I will, but I never have. So when I see articles, even if I comment on and talk about it, when I see articles that are talking about hijab not being obligatory, and one of the most recent one, I feel like it was in the Post, I'm not sure, the Washington Post, uh, but I had a podcast on it not too long ago, then it, it was trying to make this point, and the scholars that it quoted were all modern-day scholars. And I don't have an issue with modern day scholars, you know, that the Isnad, inshallah ta'ala, if you're a scholar, traditional scholar of Islam, the Isnad is still supposed to continue with you. It doesn't stop as long as people are learning from teachers who have an Isnad back to their, uh, back to the Prophet Um, And I don't have a problem with researchers because I realize that the word scholar can be used in different ways. That's, that is something that I realize. Um, through discussing with different people. And so maybe you're a scholar, but you're the way of your scholarship, you're not a traditional Islamic scholar, you're a research scholar. I have no problem with that either. But for this to be a legitimate Islamic opinion, I think it's very important that it's steeped in Islamic tradition. And so to try and say that hijab or anything else, hijab is such a popular one, that something is not, that hijab, for example, is not obligatory and then only use the opinions of modern day scholarship is very problematic. It's an issue if your appeal is to Islam and trying to have some kind of Islamic authority, some kind of grounded opinion if you want to do the research and say this is what this scholar says and this is what that scholar says 
do it. And by all means, I have no problem with that and with articles like that. But it just has to be very clear who the person is and what the point of their article is. Because that that is an issue that we we come across a lot as well. One person calls himself a scholar. Another person says, well, that, that doesn't qualify you as a scholar. We have different qualifications, different definitions of scholarship, etc. And so it's important to say who you are, basically. And to realize that you're not really in the lane of people who may also call themselves scholars or may also be called scholars, but what their scholarship is is in traditional Islam and your scholarship is in research. And so we we also have to separate those two. They're both respected, but they're not the same. Um, He goes on to say, some political theorists deem public reason as an ideal tool for conflict resolution in a pluralistic society. John Rawls felt that public reason gave members of society common ground upon which to debate and resolve problems. Without public reason, Rawls felt that the difference could never be resolved. I think this is... uh, Let me just read a couple more quotes. Liberalist appeal to public reason in reality directly changes the notion that God is the source of ultimate value. And I'll go down a bit more. Anyone who does not capitulate is labeled as backward, uneducated, or not cool, or even worse, an example of how religion is incapable of functioning practically in a pluralistic society. So as much as I agree with him in the sense of Again, public reason cannot be seen as the end-all, be-all. And uh, this is what I'll say. It is important and valuable for someone to explain a Quranic verse or to use as a proof for Islam something from the Quran that has directly to do with what we know in modern-day science. For example, something... um, I think there's a verse in the Quran about the womb and it looking like a clot at first, etc. Something that could not have been known in the time of the Prophet, but is known now in modern day science. There's nothing wrong, in my opinion, in using that fact to appeal to the logic of the modern American people. There's nothing wrong with using verses in the Quran that are now, um, uh, that have now been, uh, can I say, proven by modern science and using that to appeal to the American people. Now the problem is, the problem becomes when we use modern day science or modern day whatever, modern day morality, modern day whatever, to prove Islam to ourselves. For me, that's the issue. If I try to appeal to the American public reason, reason public reasoning, if I try to appeal to uh, America through modern day science, like use Islam, but appeal to the modern day science aspect or appeal to
modern day morality or whatever you want to put it, to me, there's nothing wrong with that. The issue becomes when you don't believe in Islam until the reality of it is seen through science or modern day morality. That's more of the issue, but it's so important that we understand America enough to be able to explain it through modern day American morality or science or whatever. Because then the question also becomes, if I can't explain Islam to a non-Muslim through American society, to American society, outside of specific Islamic contacts, how am I ever going to explain it to them? What what other tools can I use to explain Islam to them besides for the particular context that I'm in? So yes, Islam is the truth and it's going to appeal to people however it appeals to people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the end of the day, beginning and in the middle of the day, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who's going to guide whoever he wants to guide. But me as a person, I still have to do my job in the best way that I can do it. And so there's there are better ways to appeal to make Islam appeal to people and there are worse ways to make Islam appeal to people. So why not use those better ways, whether it's going towards reason, whether it's going towards logic, whether it's going towards science, whatever it is, I don't see any issue in trying to appeal to people concerning Islam through those means, as long as I myself am a believer first, as long as I myself am not waiting for American society to pat me on the back before I believe in my own religion, that's the issue I see. Um, so even though I I understand with what he's saying, I think he does has, have to see the larger context of how do we appeal to the American people within their context if not for reason, science, logic, whatever. So just a few more points. Uh, He says the definition for right and wrong, the ideal lifestyle, and the definition of piety is not given to you by your Kantian-influenced mind. It is Allah and his prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, so let us begin our discussion on Islamic Islamic. Okay. So, of course, I think that's... that, And that's kind of the point I was making before. It doesn't really matter to me. It doesn't matter how I try to make Islam appeal to people. As long as I'm not watering down Islam. As long as I'm not trying to change Islam. But for me, it doesn't matter if I try to appeal to people through reason, through logic, through anything. I know... I know of a woman who became Muslim or first became interested in Islam and a major part of her becoming Muslim was through Islamic fashion. She saw an Islamic fashion show and that was sort of the final thing that made her come to Islam because she felt, oh, I can be myself and be Muslim because she was into fashion and all that stuff. There's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with her coming through that means instead of coming through another means so I think it's important that we don't try to say 
our clothing must appeal to the American society before we as Muslims accept it, or that we must water down uh, the way we dress or something like that in order for the American society to accept it. But it is, there's nothing wrong with someone coming to Islam through a particular means. I, I guess there's a, a balance, I suppose, because in one sense, you don't want to water down the message of Islam, of course. You never want to water it down. You never want to change it. And for some people, it may seem like a change to have, for example, a fashion show. For some people, that may seem like a change, like women parading around and, and showing their bodies, etc., etc. And so I suppose there's a balance. And I think what's important is that we stick to and remember what is um, an obligation in Islam, what's fard in Islam, the things we disagree on in Islam, the things that there are room for in Islam. And that really gives us a lot of open space to then present Islam in a way that makes sense to people in American society. So he goes on to say, heteronomy is an acceptance of authority outside oneself. Kant's plea for man to be autonomous and think for himself was a direct challenge to the establishment of the church. So this is where, I'm not sure if I mentioned it before or not, but this is where for me the trust issue comes in. So it may be all well and good to say that um, there's an issue with a Muslim person, a Muslim individual, trying to seek law within himself. And trying to be autonomous. But then the question becomes. <coughs> but then the question becomes. Well who do we follow? And then the trust issue comes up. Because. To say that we shouldn't seek law within ourselves is to say that we should seek it from someone else. And so someone may say, well, of course, you seek it through Quran and Sunnah. Well, as we discussed before, in the cutoff from traditional Islam, would encourage you to do that. would encourage you to go to the Quran and go to the Sunnah and you can figure out the law all by yourself. Well, that's still an issue because that's still following yourself. It's still following your own nafs. To, the, to go to the Qur'an yourself, to go to the Hadith yourself, and find your own rulings. That's still following your own nafs. So, then the trust issue comes in. Follow the scholars. Well, can we trust the scholars? Now, it's hard to say the scholars have or have not done anything to lose the people's trust. Certainly some have, and maybe the few that have is enough for a lot of people to abandon them. So it it's a very difficult thing because as soon as you tell someone that there's something wrong with accepting your own self-law, with being independent, with having your own thought, you're basically telling them they should follow someone else, but who is that person they should follow? And that is, that's a real issue. There's a real trust issue. 
in the Muslim community. And I don't even think it's necessarily particularly Muslims. I think there's a trust factor in general with religious authorities. And so maybe we have just... um, Maybe we've just been rubbed the wrong way through even other people's religious authorities. There's been a lot of scandal within the Christian community um, with their religious leaders. And maybe we've been rubbed the wrong way even from their experience vicariously through them. I don't know. But the salute, you can't just tell people... I remember when I was teaching sometimes we would go on the subject of Tisawaf and so some people would want to know, you know, about following a tariqa and all of that and despite myself being in a tariqa for I guess it's been about four years now, a little over four years maybe. I would never tell someone to follow my Sheikh. I would never do that. Despite the fact that I believe in my sheikh in the, in the sense that I believe he's a good sheikh. I believe he's a good person to follow. I believe he's a a suitable guide for anyone who wants to follow the Sufi path. I still wouldn't tell anyone to follow my sheikh. One, it's a very personal decision, obviously. But two, there will there is that trust factor, that trust issue. Can you ever, can you trust the person? And I don't think that's particular to Muslims or to Sufis or or even to just religion. There is a general sense, almost feel like in the world, of not feeling like you can trust authority. So it's very difficult as a Muslim to be told that you shouldn't be thinking for yourself, you shouldn't be following yourself. And then you look around and you see all the distrust in authority in general. You see all the abuse of authority in general. And you feel like, well, who exactly am I supposed to follow? And um, for me, the answer to that, I suppose a bit of an esoteric one, but for me, the answer to that is simply ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ask Allah who you're supposed to follow. Ask Allah for guidance because before I I um joined the Tariqa, I had been reading books about Sufism. I asked Allah to give me a guide. Like this was something that I knew I wanted, and I kept asking for it. So, ask Allah. Ask Allah who you're supposed to follow, and that is really the solution to all of this. Even if you don't have a sheikh, even if you do have a fifth grade education of Islam, ask Allah, ask Allah. When you're writing your articles about hijab, when you're writing your articles about homosexuality, when you're writing your articles about uh, adultery, when you're writing your articles about alcohol, ask Allah first. Really ask Allah and sit with it. Because I I think, and Allah alam, but I think that anyone who really sits and asks God for guidance, would never be guided astray, would never be guided to say that alcohol is halal, would never be guided to say that uh, adultery is okay, would never be guided to say that anything clear in their religion is not clear. That's what I believe. And I remember 
when I used to listen to my uh, sheikh before I became a murid, a murida, that was one of the things he said. He said that if you ask Allah for guidance, you will never be misguided. And I really and truly believe that all of this, all of the issues, the historic issues, the individual is- issues, being minority in America, um, having a disconnect from the scholars, the Salafi, Wahhabi influence, all of that can be eradicated if we're sincere. That's all. If we are sincere, then we can get what we're looking for. When I was, uh, I don't remember what age I was, but like a teenager, and I'd be going online and this, and, and again, I'm not saying these things to say that I'm a better Muslim than anyone. I'm just saying this to say that if you really want something, you'll get it. And if we really want to change our condition, we will. So I remember uh, listening to the lectures online. And one of my favorite people for a long time was, um, well, I won't say the person's name, but they happened to be a Salafi scholar. And it was one of my favorite shuyuk for a long time when I was um, a teenager. And then I started getting into Imam Zaid. One of the things I liked about that shuyuk was that they were black and they were Caribbean and I'm black and Caribbean. So I felt a sort of connection in that way. And so listening to his Islamic lectures, I really enjoyed them. I really liked that shuyuk. And then somehow I was guided to Imam Zaid, and then I would listen to Sheikh Hamza as well, and I started listening to different people. And then somehow I found the Mecca Center in Manhattan, where they um, had more traditional shiyuk. And I remember listening to a a um, lecture online by Imam Zaid, and it had to do with um. Shafi Fiqh or Imam Shafi, something like that, or following a madhab, something like that, but it had to do with Shafi Fiqh somehow. I don't remember the exact title. But I remember thinking, I, I've got to learn that. I knew nothing about Fiqh. I knew nothing about Shafi, Hanafi, Maliki, Hanbali. I knew nothing about Madahib. But when I saw that video, I have to learn this. I have to learn Shafi Fiqh. I have to do this. And then uh, I had no way, no, didn't know where I could learn it. Um, and then I happened to find the Mecca Center, and I actually went there first for Quran, and then I ended up not doing the classes at all, and it wasn't until maybe a year later, so it was a long time later, that I decided to go back to that center, and they were teaching, um, Shafi Fik, and I got to learn Shafi Fik, and then, you know, I, what I'm trying to say is that, I was in a certain place, and then things progressed until I found my way to, to traditional Islam. I found my way to um, to to Sawaf and having a tariq. Like I found my way because that's what I really wanted. And so, if we really want our condition as Muslims to change in terms of Islamic knowledge, if we really want to be better educated, if we really want to have better authority figures, better shayuk that we can trust, we'll get it. I really believe that we will get it, inshallah ta'ala. But we have to ask. We have to ask and do. We have to ask and search. Because sometimes when you ask and do, you will fumble your way through until you get to that place. But I really believe if you're sincere and you keep asking, you'll get it. And so 
we will find our way through this fog when it comes to Islamic knowledge. Because right now we're in a fog. As he said, we are very educated in many, many things except Islam. I would say we have a pre-K knowledge of Islam as a whole in a Muslim community. And our American Islamic shayuk have maybe a junior high school level of Islam. And they'll tell you that. They will tell you compared to their shayuk in in Senegal or Mauritania or Syria. They have a junior high school level of Islam. And so we have a long way to go. And in a sense, we shouldn't beat ourselves up about it. How long have Muslim Americans been here? Um, of course, we were here since the beginning, I suppose, in the sense of uh, the enslaved people, but obviously they could not express their faith, their religion. And so we we come a long way. We just have to keep going and we have to have the humility to know that we only have a pre-K level as a community of Islamic knowledge and not have the arrogance and not be stuck in this idea that we can be self-taught and we can just go to the Quran and the Hadith books in English ourselves and figure it out. We have to have enough enough of an awareness to know that we're not there yet. And so inshallah ta'ala we will get out of this fog of um being at such a low level in our Islamic knowledge but a high level in so many other things and creating this complicated relationship with Islam where we approach it in a way as if we know more than we do. But I don't think we do it on purpose. I think we do it because we don't know any better. And so I have a lot of hope that things will get better. And as I said earlier in the podcast, you see it all around. There are all these institutes popping up, maqasid, uh, I mentioned a lot of others before. They're all ta'lif. There are all these little institutes popping up all over the states. So we're we're getting there. But we just have to make sure that we remember that we're at a very low level of Islamic education. So let's act like we know that and keep praying and asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make it better. Thank you for listening. Take care.